It's so good to have you with us this morning as we uh, worship the Lord together. Patrick will be preaching today and all of August. Uh, all of our preaching on Wednesdays and Sundays was scheduled way back before I ever went to Israel. So everything's like we, we did early in January. So Patrick's going to preach all the month of August in Genesis chapter 3. So it's going to be very, very good, very enlightening. We're excited about that. And uh, I'm excited just to sit back and watch him preach and see if he's any good or not. So, and, But we know he is. And so we thank the Lord that he is here and he's able to share the word of the Lord with us. Hopefully you've been listening on Wednesday nights uh, to, to the Summer of Psalms. Uh, Esteban was this past week with Psalm, I think it was um, 23, yeah, I should know that. And uh, so, and Bruce, where's Bruce at? Bruce is doing the month of August on Wednesdays. Uh, and his father, of course, you know, uh, preached on, or did his own commentary on the Psalms, basically. And so, uh, if you remember Art McLean, he did a big study in Psalms. That was his favorite book. And so, uh, Bruce will be preaching on that uh, starting this Wednesday. All right, now, I, let, me, let me address the elephant in the room, okay? And the elephant in the room is, why are we still outside and not inside? Some of you have asked, why are we still here? Uh, MacArthur went inside. Uh, how come we can't go inside? That bug is back. In the same location it was last. It must be the perfume you guys have. I don't know what it is. Or the cologne that Al's wearing. I don't know. So let me answer that question for you, please, because I know that some of you have, uh, have texted me and some of you have called uh, different elders uh, in our church and asked, well, why aren't we going in? MacArthur did. Okay, just remember, MacArthur's only in one out of three services, first of all. The first service is outside, the second one's inside, and the night service is outside. So he's only one-third in, not fully in. So, uh, but we don't go in, in because MacArthur went in. That's, that's not the point. And, and, and we don't go in. If the governor said today you can go in tomorrow, we're not going to go in tomorrow either because we're not necessarily subject to all that the governor says when it comes to where we meet or don't meet. You know, we are here because as elders and leaders of our church, we decided that being outside would be a good thing for us, and it has been. It's been a great thing for us. The excitement in your hearts and minds, uh, different people coming and setting up, more people working, uh, being involved in all that we're doing is a great thing. It doesn't mean we're always going to do this, but we're trying to perfect this so that, Lord willing, next summer, this will be something that we will do uh, periodically. So if we don't perfect it now, it'll be harder to perfect next year. So we want to be able to get it down to a, to a science so that we can do this again next summer at different times. Not meaning we're going to do it all of June, July, and August, but we're trying to weigh all that. So please remember that uh, we as elders and pastors and leaders of our church meet together, the nine of us, all the time. And we are digesting everything that's happening. Everything is, in, in, is, is very fluid. And as we pray, and as we seek the will of the Lord, every one of us come to a unanimous decision. We don't sit there and say, half the board says this and half the board says that. We come out unified in terms of what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. And that's a great thing about our leadership. We don't want to be divisive. We want to be unified. And so God has opened the door for us to be able to be outside. It's, it's a unique opportunity for us. We've never done this in 25 years. And the truth of the matter is, I love preaching in shorts and no tie. Let's be honest, okay? That's just the, that's just the, the fun part about it. Uh, but uh, so please remember that. 
And uh, as pray for us as, as, as leaders. We meet, you know, twice a month, and we take each week as it comes. We're trying to evaluate each week. Two weeks is not enough to evaluate it on. So over the next four weeks, maybe even five and six weeks and seven weeks, we're going to evaluate this as we go to see what is best for you. What's best for the church? What's best for us as a community of believers who meet together? Because we have some people who come because we're outside and uh, others who don't come because we're outside. All right? So we're not making decisions based on what people do or who comes and who doesn't come. We're trying to make a decision based on what is best for the entire church as we seek to honor and glorify our Lord. Remember I told you three weeks ago that if whatever is said never obstructs our obligation to worship, our opportunity for worship, and the order of worship, we are free to do and go wherever we want to go. So please remember that. And when we come back in September, I'll talk to you about ecclesiastical authority. It's come to realize that a lot of people don't understand that, and so we'll preach on that in September. Now, I know my time is, is short, but I'm taking longer than I said, but I told Patrick, as long as I, I speak, you can add on to the end of your sermon. Okay, here's the deal. Who knows that the saddest day of the year took place this past week? Does anybody know that? And what day it was? Does anybody know? It was third. Yes. Ah, Tisha B'Av. On Thursday, the 29th of July. You say, Tisha B'Av, what is that? Tisha B'Av is one of the feasts and ceremonies that Israel uh, celebrates every year. It's the only celebration they have that's not a joyous celebration. It's one of mourning. Tisha B'Av is the ninth of Av, the fifth month in the Jewish calendar. And they celebrate it because in 586 B.C., when the first temple was destroyed, it was destroyed on the ninth of Av. And then in 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed again, it was destroyed on the 9th of Av. And so what they do is they celebrate in mourning and crying over their rebellion to their God. Now, if you read the Talmud, which I'm not a versed person in reading the Talmud, but if you are to look up Tisha B'Av in the Talmud, they will tell you the root behind it is Numbers 13 and 14. In Numbers 13 and 14, you know the story about the spies when they went, went into the land of Israel to spy it out, and they, they came back, and Joshua and Caleb came back with a, a positive report, but the 10 spies came back with a negative report. And they said, we are like grasshoppers in their eyes. We cannot go in. And Numbers 14, verse number 1 says, the people began to weep and to mourn. And the Talmud says this, that because... You did not listen to the voice of the Lord, and you did not obey his word, but instead you wept in disobedience. You will now weep forever until Messiah comes. And they weep forever, all based on the fact that they did not obey the word of the Lord. And Tisha B'Av is a reminder to the Israel, Israel nation that they have lost 
what Psalm 48 talks about when fathers are to tell their children, look at the gates, look at the towers, look at this monstrosity, the city of God, look at this. They're to teach their children about Zion and the, and the, and the people of God. And that's why Psalm 137 says, if I forget Jerusalem, okay, may I refrain from ever speaking again. May my right hand be cut off if I forget thee, O Jerusalem. You see, we are so Americanized that we have never recognized what truly needs to be memorialized. We can't afford to be so Americanized that we forget about the root of Christianity. Judaism is the root. Christianity is the fruit. The better you know Judaism, the clearer Christianity comes to be. That's why the book of Hebrews is so important. And yes, we will get back to the book of Hebrews in the fall. That's my promise. We will do that unless the Lord comes again. So here's the point. Tisha B'Av, celebrated once a year by the nation of Israel, to mourn and to cry the loss of their temple and to pray the book of Lamentations that the Messiah would come. And he will come again, but before that there will be an anti-Messiah. And they will think that that's the Messiah and begin to rejoice and no longer be involved in Tisha B'Av. But when he desecrates a temple in the middle of the tribulation, called the abomination of desolation, according to Daniel 9, 27, then what will happen is that they will begin to mourn again. And then, of course, Zechariah 12.10 says, they will look on him and whom they have pierced, and they will mourn. And then their mourning will be over because their Messiah will truly have arrived and saved them as he's promised. So Tisha B'Av is a reminder to you and me as Gentiles. The Goim is simply this, that when you hear the word of the Lord and you decide not to do what God says, your life will be filled with mourning as it is in Israel. But if you hear the voice of the Lord through the power of preaching and teaching of the word of God and you obey, there is no mourning but joy because blessed are those who hear the word of the Lord and keep it. Let me pray with you. Father, thank you for today. What a great day. Thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you, to honor you, to live for you. May we be the kind of people that mourn over our sin and rejoice in the Savior that delivered us from that sin. We are so grateful, Lord, for a chance to worship you. I pray for Pastor Patrick today. Use him in a mighty way to bring forth the truth of Genesis chapter 3. May our eyes be illuminated. And may what we hear, may we not weep and disobey, but may we say yes and obey and experience the joy of the living God. Father, we pray for our country. We know that it's divided. We know there's turmoil that's here. But we know that it's all been ordained by the sovereign hand of God. And Amos says that if there's calamity in the city, it's the Lord who has done that. And so we trust you to bring about your perfect purpose for our church and for this, this state and this country in which we live in. May we be salt and light for the glory of the kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord, you are so good, kind, and patient with us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a reverence for you, a fear of the Lord. Help our hearts to be in tune as we look at the scriptures, as we see who you are. 
Lord, your scriptures declare, blessed are those who are mourned, for they shall be comforted. Lord, help us to mourn. Help us, Lord, to weep over our sin that we may run to the Savior to find everlasting and eternal joy. Lord, we look unto you. You're our only hope. That's the song we just sung. All we have is Christ Jesus. You are our life. We praise you for this morning. May you be glorified. May you be pleased, Lord, as we worship. In your name, amen. Amen. As 2019 came to an end, many people were excited because it was the end of a year. And a new year was upon them. And not only a new year, but a new decade was coming. It was a time where people saw a fresh new start, new beginnings, new possibilities, new resolutions, meaning new Bible reading plans, new diets, new gym memberships, new jobs, new degrees, new relationships, romantic interest, more babies to come. The start of 2020 was viewed by many as a year where dreams and hopes would be fulfilled. However, shortly after 2020 began, several people became rattled. They became shook because they thought they were on the brink of World War III. This came as the result of President Trump ordering a strike upon Qasem Soleimani. While many people cheered that and celebrated the successfulness of that strike, other people feared that this would create a worldwide calamity. We're then beginning to trend on Twitter, World War III is near. It's happening. Thankfully, that didn't occur, but people thought still that that was a genuine threat. At the end of January, on January 26, many people were shocked and saddened to hear about the death of Kobe Bryant and eight others really in a tragic helicopter crash. Shortly after that, we began to hear about a virus, a virus in China, previously known as the Wuhan virus. For many of us, we thought that that was something on the other side of the world, something that would never come near to us, something that would never affect us. Well, as the weeks began to go on, it became a present reality that this was something that was going to affect us to a great degree. In the middle of March, we were told that an NBA player by the name of Rudy Gobert had contracted the virus and the NBA season was temporarily suspended. We were then also told that Tom Hanks and his wife, Rita Wilson, had contracted the virus. This caused people to panic. Then the following week, Governor Newsom ordered a statewide shutdown. This caused millions of people to become unemployed, people to feel uneasy, not knowing the degree and the severity of the virus. It even caused people to fight over toilet paper at the store. People panicking all over about the nature of this virus. People have become sick from it, and sadly even people have died from this virus. During our time of lockdown in early May, we were warned about another threat, 
something was coming, migrating over here that we need to know about, and that was the threat of killer hornets coming near us. And we needed to be on guard. We needed to be prepared from this killer enemy. At the end of May, we heard about the death of George Floyd on Memorial Day. And that death then eventually spawned protest, riots, looting, and anarchy. A couple weeks after that, we began to hear about another shortage. This, though, wasn't a shortage of toilet paper, but rather it was a shortage of coins. A coin shortage that we need to make sure that we keep our spare change and we use it. A couple weeks after that, we were again, once again, reminded of COVID-19, that it is still a present reality. We're told that it's still a present threat. Hence, we went to another modified form of lockdown measures. Riots continue. In Portland presently, riots are happening all around the city and many others. We also had an earthquake just uh, about a week ago where that caused people in the San Fernando Valley really to feel uneasy. A hurricane presently is getting ready to hit the East Coast at this time. And to top it off, it's an election year, which always seems to divide and split people, whether Christian or non-Christian, regardless of what party. Even if you're an independent, it always seems to bring forms of tension, degrees of tension, and always seems to hi highlight really political tension all the more. Now, of course, there are several other things that we could highlight that have occurred throughout the year. But you get the point. The point is clear that 2020 isn't what you or others had hoped it would be. But here's what you need to understand. The truth is, is that 2020 is not unique. 2020 is not unique. It's not unique in terms of adversity. It's not unique in terms of trials, tension, division, illnesses, viruses, flus, hurricanes, tornadoes, on a moral level, adultery, divorce, murder, death at all ages because death is no respecter of persons. 2020 is not unique because every year is filled with these realities, not just 2020. Now, of course, certain things may impact us more than other years. It may be displayed differently, and it may be more intensified over other years. We understand that. And our response to it may vary. But we still know that each year has these components and features that are intertwined and interwoven through it. That's why 2020 is not unique. Because this is the reality of every year that we live. And the obvious response that many give is why? Why do these things perpetually happen? Why do they keep occurring. In other words, what is wrong with the world? What's wrong with creation? What's wrong with mankind? 
What's wrong with us? Because we recognize something isn't right. Something is wrong. But what is it? What's the problem? Well, if you answer that question according to the common worldview of today, which the common worldview of today is one of naturalism, which replaces God with matter, excluding the supernatural and the spiritual, and says we're here by accident. We're here by random chance, natural selection. And we're governed by natural laws, not God. There is no creator. There is no divine law. That worldview, that worldview of naturalism, would say specifically now in terms of us, in terms of mankind, in terms of human beings, if you had to condense it, they would really condense it to two things. Biology and experience. Biology and experience. Biology, there's something physically wrong with you. There's something mentally wrong with you, whether it's a birth defect or there's some sort of chemical imbalance. There's something physically contributing to your state. Second would be experience, the environment you were brought up in, the way you were shaped, the way you were molded. Maybe you were treated very poorly and you're a victim of some sort of evil and hence you're now just acting out. Biology and experience. Now, we can recognize on a second and third level, those things indeed can be true. But it still doesn't answer the main problem, the root issue. You need to understand that the naturalistic worldview cannot answer that question, what's wrong? Nor can it adequately answer our origin story. Nor can it give an adequate sort of answer to the solution to what is wrong. Not only can the naturalistic worldview not do that, no other worldview can do that except one. Only one worldview can answer those questions, and it's only the biblical worldview that can do that because it's rooted in the scriptures. Only the scriptures can answer where we came from, What's wrong? And what's the solution? Only the scriptures can answer those questions accurately and consistently. Only the scriptures can answer the creation question, the fall question, and the redemption question. Only God's word can do that because his word is truth. Because he is the God of truth. And his very word is inspired by him. So all that it declares, all that it speaks, all that it reveals, it is truth. Because it comes from him. In fact, the first three chapters of the Bible answer these questions. The questions of creation, fall, and redemption. And over these, these next few weeks, we'll be looking at the most important chapter of the three. In fact, we'll be looking at the most important chapter in the entire Bible. And the reason this is, is because it answers both questions two and three. What's wrong and what's the solution? The fall, 
and redemption. All in Genesis chapter 3. But before we can look at chapter 3, we need to look at chapters 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, because they answer the first question. Where do we come from? They answer the origin question. They answer the creation question. And they also lay the foundation for chapter 3 to see what was lost in the fall. So this morning will be only introduction. We're just going to look at Genesis 1 and 2. That first question, the creation question, where do we come from? And then the following weeks, we'll spend our time in Genesis 3. Of course, our time this morning is short, and we only have one Sunday to do this. Genesis 1 and 2, reality, they deserve a whole year, but we're condensing it to just a few moments this morning, so it will be a brief, broad overview, over, overview, but nevertheless, we want to be consistent with the most important parts and aspects of what is communicated in this chapter. So let's start, in, in of course, Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1, a verse we all know. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the very first verse of the Bible, we are introduced to the God who exists to the living God, the God in whom Moses does not provide an opening defense for his existence. There is no opening apologetics to prove that God does exist. And the reason for that is that God is not on trial. God is not under us to prove that he indeed does exist because he is the assumed God. He is the eternal God, the everlasting God. The God who is, the God who is the great I am. He is the God who the scriptures declare created all things. It says he created the heavens and the earth. This describes all creation by identifying the extremes from the heavens above to the earth below to all that exists between them. He is the creator of all things. And the creation account tells us that he created all things in six days. Six days. Now, there's some debate about what those six days are referring to. Some would say those six days are referring to long periods of time, long gaps, long ages. We here, though, as a church, teach and hold to a literal, historical, grammatical hermeneutic, which we take these days as literal, that these are six 24-hour periods rather than ages, rather than epochs or errors. These are 24, 24 six-hour days. And in terms of how God creates, He creates out of nothing. He creates out of nothing, meaning there was no pre-existing material. There was no pre-existing products that God Himself had used to Create. That's why the work of creation is uniquely the work of God. For yes, man can create, but man requires products. He requires materials. Man cannot create out of nothing. Only God can do that. God creates simply by His power. He creates by the power of His Word. 
Psalm 33, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. The power of his spoken word brought forth creation. If you look at Genesis 1-3, it says, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1-6, God said, Let there be an expanse or a firmament in the heavens, and it was so. Verse 9, God says, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. Verse 11, the same language continues, Then God said, and then it was so. Verse 14, God said, Let there be lights. It was so. Verse 20, Then God said, let the waters teem with the swarms of living creatures. It was so. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And it was so. God spoke, and so it was. When God said it, it was accomplished. It was done. Creation put up no challenge, no resistance. No disagreement, because when God spoke it, it was created the exact way he wanted it, because it was carried out by divine imperative. This really displays his omnipotence, that he's all-powerful, that he's almighty, and that he has the power to do everything that in his perfect wisdom and goodness he wills to do. That's why Job, at the conclusion of the book, in Job 42, doesn't give credit to Satan and say, Satan, man, is your power mighty? Are are, are you so powerful? By no means. In fact, at the end of the chapter, after all that Job endured and he went through, he says in Job 42, verse 2, God, I know you can do all things, and no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Psalm 33, verse 11, psalmist says the same thing, that the counsel of the Lord stands forever, his plan to all generations. All that God wills, all that he promises, he can do and he will do. He is the omnipotent God. And because he is omnipotent, his sovereign will is never frustrated. It never goes incomplete. It's never thwarted, for it always goes complete. Isaiah 14, 27 says, For if the Lord of hosts has purposed, who will annul it? And if his arm is stretched out, who will turn it back? The creation account displays this very truth of God's power. Creation displays the very power of God. And not only does the creation account display his power, but also the very fact that we're having this conversation is a display of his power because what God creates, he sustains. He preserves. He holds together. Colossians 1.17 says, in Christ, all things consist. The very fact that you and I are having this conversation on this beautiful Sunday morning, and it is beautiful, is it not? Is because God is giving you grace to have life. The very fact that your heart is beating and you are breathing right now is because God is giving you grace. And it is his power that is sustaining you. 
the creation account also displays his perfection, his goodness, because everything he brings into existence, into being, is good. Look at what he declares after everything he brings in, starting in verse 4. God saw the light was good. Skip down to verse 10. The dry land, the gathering of the waters, he called the seas, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, after he brings forth vegetation, plants, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, God saw that it was good. And this continues throughout the creation narrative, throughout Genesis 1. God saw that it was good. All that he created was good. Creation was good because God is good. Everything that comes from God, it is good. It is righteous. It is pure. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What God does is good. That's something we need to remember today especially in light of the times that we're living, especially in light of what's happening all around us, that God is not only reigning on his throne and that he's sovereign, that he's powerful, but that he's also, he's good, that he's kind. You know, when challenges and trials and obstacles come, the number one thing that we question is the character of God. Is he still good? And the scriptures answer with a resounding yes. Absolutely. Do not forget the goodness of God. Not just in light of what is happening around us, but even just personally in your life. You may be going through something challenging, difficult. God is still good. God is still kind. Do not question his faithfulness. Run to the word, don't run away from it. Let the scriptures be your guide, not merely your feelings. Let the scripture speak the truth rather than merely the experiences you are enduring. Remember the goodness of God, that he is faithful. All of creation displays this, his goodness, whether it's day one light, day two, the waters being separated, day three, the land and vegetation, Day four, the sun, the moons, and stars. Day five, fish and the birds. Day six, the animals, man and woman. We're also created good and perfect. And not only were they created good and perfect, they were also made in the image and likeness of God. Look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man in his image, in his likeness, which simply just means that man is a finite reflection of the infinite God. We represent him. We display him in a variety of ways, an abundance of ways that we are to reflect and to honor God. Part of being made in his image is displayed in the role that mankind was given by God. The very fact that he created man in his image, we see in verse 27. We also see in verse 28 that God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, 
multiply, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. It tells us that man was given dominion over the earth, delegated by God to rule, to have authority, to control it. He also is commanded, verse 28, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to populate it. Verses 29 through 30, we see that God will provide the necessary sustenance, the necessary energy for them to fulfill their duty, to carry out this rule and responsibility. This rulership that has been given to man by God is a stewardship, a stewardship. And this is quite remarkable if we think about it, especially when we understand it in light of all of the creation account, in light of the context of all of creation. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 8, because it highlights this point. Psalm chapter 8, and it says, we'll pick up in verse 3, when it says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. And you put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist is praising God. When he considers all of God's creation, he goes, why would you even think of man? We are nothing but a blimp on the radar. We're a speck. But yet, look at the role, the position, the stewardship that you have given us. The response of the psalmist is one of praise. When we understand our responsibility as man, that we've been created in the image of God, and our duty, it should result in praise, honor, and worship. This rulership, this stewardship that has given for us is further illustrated in chapter 2, which expands more on the details of the day of day 6 of creation. We're told in verse 7 that highlights more specifically how man was created. Verse 7 says that the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. This is the method of the creation of man. God created man out of the ground. The physical parts of man were taken out of the dust of the ground. Now, of course, man is simply more than dust because as we see at the end of Genesis 1, he is made in the image of God. And we see here that he is also a living soul, that he has been made alive by God's direct power. God's energizing power gave life. That's why Job says in Job 33 verse 4, the spirit of God has made me, the breath of the Almighty has given me life. Only life can come from life. And only the living, self-existent God could directly impart life and activate man to life. The God who is life is able to give life, and not just physical life, but spiritual life and eternal life to those who embrace the Son of God. This narrative account about 
man's origin clearly refutes the belief of Darwinian evolution, more the theory and the philosophical assumption of Darwinian evolution, which is human evolution, that we came about through a long process of animal evolution. This account goes completely against that. For man came directly from God, not animal ancestry. His body and soul came from God. That's what the creation story tells us. It, it tells us where we came from. My friends, this is our origin story. This is personal to us. This is our history where we came from. Because our body and our soul also ultimately come from God. He creates us in the womb of our mother. Psalm 139 tells us of how he puts us together. It is God who forms us. Psalm 119, verse 73, the psalmist says, Your hands have fashioned me. Job chapter 10, 8 through 12, he talks about how you have put me together specifically. My skin, my ligaments, my bones, you have made them all. Psalm 100, verse 3 says, The Lord is the one who made us and not we ourselves. God is our maker. There's such really a rejection of this, especially today, as God as creator. Because there's such a hatred of the body, such a denial of it. That's really the whole push of the LTBQ plus movement. That I am not my body. My body is irrelevant to who I am. My biology is meaningless because I determine who I am. I decide my gender identity based on my feelings and my innermost concept of self. This really is a foolish attempt to remove God off the throne. It's seeking to usurp God. It's fighting God in order to play God. But the reality is, is that it's self-hatred. It's self-denial and the way that God has made you. It's a heart that is dissatisfied, discontent, and ungrateful for the God who has given you life. You know, we tend to forget that physical life is a gift. Of course, we are to celebrate spiritual and eternal life, absolutely. But just the very fact that you have life is a gift. God did not need you. God did not have to create you. God was not lonely. God was fully satisfied and sufficient within his Trinitarian glory and within his Trinitarian relationship. He was not bored. But yet, nevertheless, in his kindness, he created us. He created you. And he created you specifically either as male or female. With the race that he gave you, with the features that he gave you. God made you. Rejoice and celebrate the way God has made you. Amen. Be thankful for the gender he has given you, for both are a gift. Be grateful for the race he has given you, whether that's white, black, or brown. Be grateful that God has given you life. And regardless of the features you have, God has made them all, it tells us in Exodus 4.11. I've made the mute, 
the seeing, the hearing, and the blind. The very features you have is because God has made you that way. Be content and be grateful for God who has given you life. God gave Adam life. He directly, we see, makes Adam and he places him in the Garden of Eden. And we see that in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden and there he placed the man whom he had formed. We see the purpose for why he places them there. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. This was for the purpose of caring for it. The Garden of Eden that Adam was placed into was a beautiful place, a perfect place. It was really a garden paradise. Any gardener's dream, well watered, but in streams, a place for plants, food, and work. Verse 9 really describes this well. Where it says, out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Which were, these were trees that are not explained exactly to the type of nature that they were, apart from the title that they're given, but they were beautiful to behold. And not only were these two trees pleasant to the sight, but every tree. Because look what it says, every tree was pleasant to behold. That word pleasant means desirable, delightful, beautiful. All the trees were this way. Not just two of them. Not just the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not just the tree of life. Every tree was beautiful to behold. And all of these trees, Adam had full access to partake. Look at verse 16. It says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat. God supplies the abundant food. Adam is then given the freedom to partake, to eat. They were there for Adam's enjoyment and satisfaction. Now we see in the next verse, this joyful offer in verse 16 is followed by a very specific exception. Verse 17 says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam is prohibited from partaking from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The single forbidden tree really serves as the contrast with the many and the rest that aren't forbidden. The reason for this restriction is not stated or explained, but it doesn't have to be. God doesn't have to give a reason to Adam why not to partake because he's God. He's the creator. He's the one who makes us and we are to follow. But what God does do is give a warning as to what will happen if the man is to partake. He says, you shall surely die. You shall surely die. As God did not have to give an explanation as to why not to eat it, which again, he didn't have to do. He doesn't have to give the warning consequence here, but he does do it. Display of his kindness. And by doing so, he introduces death for the first time. Death simply means separation. And it can be physical separation, spiritual separation, or eternal separation. And it's important for us to understand really the threefold nature of how Scripture refers to all three. Physical death, of course, happens when the soul leaves the body. Spiritual is the state, the natural state of every person who is in sin. And then eternal Separation or eternal death is the state of all people who die with their sins unforgiven. 
It's important, again, we understand the distinction because this will become more prevalent as we get into Genesis 3. If you look at the next verse, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. It's the only time throughout the creation account that God says something is not good. Now, this does not mean that there was evil or that there was corruption, but only that creation was unfinished and yet incomplete. Because the last act of creation was that of the woman who would serve as the perfect helpmate and companion to the man. But before this woman is made, we see in verses 19 through 20, Adam is naming the animals, demonstrating his authority, operating in the position that God had assigned for him. It's also revealed that of all of God's creatures, man had no suitable companion. Animal could not, or any animal, could not fulfill the role of the perfect helper. Nor could another man fulfill this role. For only the woman could fulfill this role. So the Lord initiates the action, causes the man to fall into a deep sleep and takes from the man's side. So that the woman in every way is human just like the man. And it's interesting to note that God doesn't take from the head, which would imply that the woman is superior. Nor does he take from the feet, which would imply that the woman now is inferior to the man but rather from the side to demonstrate equality, that they are equal. God then brings the woman to the man to be with him. We see in verse 23, Adam's response says, The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam's response, to say the least, is filled with joy, delight, and excitement. This is, in fact, the first time we see the man speaking. And he does so in a poetic form, really every woman's dream, yeah. <laughs> affirming that he and the woman indeed are made up of the same stuff, that they come from the same source. This is really Adam saying, yes, at last, one of my own kind is here. The perfect helper is now here. And this one of his own kind would be his wife who he would be one with and whom he was called to lead and she was to follow. Verse 24 lays out the nature of the relationship where it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The creation of the first couple leads to the relationship expressed through the marriage union, which the marriage union would then serve as the way for the couple to fulfill their duty to procreate and subdue the earth. This marriage union would also serve as the first human institution in which a man and a woman would cling together in this permanent union, which would be a covenant, an oath-bound relationship. The New Testament refers to marriage, the meaning of marriage, as a mystery, pointing to something even greater. The Apostle Paul says it refers to and points to the greater relationship, which is, which is ultimately with Christ and his bride, the church that Christ has purchased a bride by his shed blood. And now he is one with his bride. The marriage union points to the gospel. It points to the good news. That's why it's to be a visual expression of Christ and his relationship with his bride, the church. That's why I love going to weddings. I was just at a wedding a couple weeks ago. In fact, I was blessed to be in the wedding. Dylan and Callie Paulson. 
And what I love about being in the weddings is it's always a picture of anticipation of what is to come of the marriage supper of the Lamb, of Christ with his bride, the church, that we all long for. Let's look at the final verse. Final verse, in verse 25, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We see that the two were in perfect harmony at the end of the creation. There was no shame, no embarrassment, no awkwardness, no impurity, no filthy thoughts. There was nothing unclean. There was no sin. There was just harmony between the man and the woman. And not only was there harmony between the man and the woman, there was harmony with God and the couple. God and the man. God and the woman. Harmony between God and his creation. Perfect peace in every way and everywhere. There was no threat of war. There were no tragic deaths. There were no viruses. There were no illnesses. No reason for social distancing or wearing masks. No killer hornets. No riots or looting. No anarchy. No earthquakes, floods or hurricanes, fires. No murder, adultery, divorce or racism. There was none of that. Because at the end of day six, go back to Genesis 31. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. That is the ultimate conclusion of the creation account. Everything was very good. And that's why it says on day seven, God rested as a sign of completion, goodness, and the perfection of his creation. But sadly today, it's not like it was in Genesis 1 and two. Things are not in a state of harmony. Things are not in a state of peace, especially with God and man. For man now naturally hates God. He is anti-God, and he's filled with an idolatrous heart, loving many false loves. The question is to why? What happened? What went wrong? Well, to the answer to that question, my prayer would be that you would come join us over these next four weeks as we look at the fall and walk that through verse by verse. But not only will we look at the fall, we will also answer the solution question within that chapter, the redemption question, all in Genesis 3. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this time this morning that we can be in your word, that we can look at it and go over it. Pray that you were pleased. Give us a heart of worship, Lord, as we now transition to partake of the Lord's table. Prepare us, Lord, and may we do so, Lord, with reverence and again, the fear of the Lord. In your name, amen.